Welcome to RiskWise, a show about money for Muslims, where you'll learn how to make smarter financial decisions without selling your soul. For the full experience, join us at no cost at riskwise.com. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the show. Ahmed here and Saeed is there. Assalamu alaikum. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us once again. Alhamdulillah. So Saeed, today's a big one. This could be long, but we're going to try to keep it nice and short. We're going to cram it in there. You promised, right? You're going to keep I, it. I will go back on that promise, but I will try. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm going to hold you to it. So we, we right. have a lot to get through today. We, Big we, things. And we've covered a lot of stuff, right? So like, you know, we've talked about intentions. We've talked about goal setting. We've talked about the importance of good financial habits. But what we haven't done yet is that we haven't gotten into some of the mechanics of money. Mm-hmm. Some of the realities about financial, the financial world that everybody needs to know, but not nearly enough people do. Well, because it's not very intuitive, right? For, this is not common sense. It's not intuitive. And we're not really taught this stuff in school or, you know, be it high school or even university. Unless you're an economics or a finance major, you can be excused for not knowing any of this. Yes. And that's why it's so important for us to get this in your brain. So today we just want to lay it out there and, you know, in Saeed's terms, he's going to, and I quote, <laughs> drop some serious knowledge. I'll try. His, his words, not <laughs> mine, but pressure's on, right? So, yeah. so five lies about money that are holding you back. Absolutely. Ready to go? Absolutely. Yep. Lie number one, being debt free is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, and I've heard this in many different variations from people. Uh, Muslims obviously are a big culprit of this, and it, it comes from a good place, right? Like most of these do. It comes from a place of being, you know, not wanting to be in debt, not wanting to pay anything in interest, and that's great. That's a great place to be. However, being the end all and be all of your financial success, that's where it's a problem, a major problem. If you are you know, 20 years old and you're 25 years old and you're out of school and your main goal is to get that school debt gone, that's fantastic. Do that, get that school debt out of there, get that line of credit debt, whatever you have. If you have credit card debt, get that out. Absolutely. That should be a main focus of your life. But the day that that happens, the day that you are debt free, that's not the finish line. That is the beginning beginning of another marathon, a marathon that could be 30, 40, 50, 60 years long. And that's where if you are debt-free now, great. If a year from now, you're still in the same position, debt-free, which is good, but you haven't built anything else, no other savings, no other assets, no other investments, that is where this problem is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, so, so being debt-free is a good, worthwhile goal but it's an intermediary goal. It's a step along the path. It's not a des- the destination in and of itself. Yes. And I think a good way to think about this is, is if you're debt-free, you're just not digging yourself into a deeper hole. Right. You're not, you're not getting anywhere. You're not building a foundation towards anything. Imagine you're 65 years old, you have no debt, you've just paid off your house, and then you retire tomorrow. How are you, you no longer have a job, you no longer have an income, how are you paying your bills? How are you buying groceries? Great, you have no debt, but you have nothing to support you. 
That's why being debt-free as the ultimate goal, the be-all and end-all, the thing that, and, and the, the danger here is that once you are debt-free, that you pat yourself on the back, and that's okay to pat yourself on the back, but don't pat yourself on the back for too long. Move forward. You have to be moving forward beyond that. So it's great to get there, but it's a rest stop, not a destination. Perfect. Yeah, I love the way you put that. So th- that's perfect. Lie number two is I like cash because it's safe. Yeah, this is uh, the, the wording of this. Ahmed and I were working on for a while. Yeah, technically, cash is safe. It's you know you have a hundred dollar bill today. A hundred years from now, you'll still have a hundred dollar bill. Why cash isn't safe is because what you can buy for that hundred dollar bill or hundred pound note or hundred euro. What you can buy with that today is a lot more than what you will be able to buy with that a hundred years from now. I mean, there's a, I'm looking at the uh, New Jersey, Morris County, I think this is the archive uh, of prices of different things. Hold on. Why are you on the New Jersey, Morris County website? I I have to ask. I I Googled uh, what was the price of coffee in 1950 and that's where I came. So New Jersey, Morris County publishes this. It's like a historical record. Oh, good for Morris County. It worked out for me. So the, the key thing here is cash, the dollars, the reason that this concept is confusing is because the dollars on your, the number on your dollar bill doesn't change or the number in your bank account doesn't change. It doesn't go down. So therefore people assume it's safe. But what you can get for those dollars goes down. So in 1950 in New Jersey, you could have bought a white cotton shirt for $2.99. Oh, wow. $2.99, right? Now it's at least $18.99 by their comparison. And think about that. From 1950 till now, 1950, that shirt was probably made locally there in America. Cotton probably, uh, well, probably wasn't weaved there, but it was grown there. The manufacturing was done there. Now that $18.99 shirt is made in some country out, you know, in the Far East. And it's still, even despite all that globalization and whatever, it's still way more expensive today. I've never bought a shirt for eighteen ninety nine. I don't know. I don't know where you can buy those. Yeah, I, I I hesitate to ask what that shirt looks like. But if you think about the value of that, if you were in nineteen fifty and you said, "I have two dollars ninety nine cents. I want to put that away in a bank account. I want to put that tuck that under my mattress. That is money. Uh, it is safe. I want to keep my money safe. I'm I'm risk averse. I'm afraid about what's going on in the world and you know the world wars and all that kind of stuff. I just want to keep my money safe. I'm going to tuck it under my mattress. So you do that, and then sixty five years later, you come back and you pull out that two dollars ninety nine cents. Well. Now you can buy, barely buy anything with it. You still have those dollars, but they're worth less than they were before. And it's huge. This concept erodes so much capital. And this concept of inflation, it's not an accident that it exists. You know, inflation is not something that uh, is some byproduct of whatever. It is a regulated, government-controlled uh, entity. Ooh, I like this. This is a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy, but not in the way that you think. It's not a conspiracy against you and me. It's actually a conspiracy against rich people. Oh. Yeah. You see, if you were very wealthy and you just had a whole bunch of cash because you're wealthy, just sitting under your mattress, like, you know, in duffel bags, drug dealer style, 
that money is not able to flow in the market and not able to flow, you know, in the economy and it shuts things down. Economies are just money flowing between people and trade happening. If you have all the cash, trade cannot happen. So we create this thing called inflation that says, hey, buddy, if you have cash, like literal dollar bills, zero notes, bank account balances, and you're not investing it or you're not spending it, it's going to be worth less next year. So get off your butt and go spend that money put it back in the economy, or go invest it. So it inflation is, a is bad for drug dealers and Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> yes, it is bad for Floyd Mayweather. Don't be carrying your cash around in duffel bags. Don't store it in duffel bags or in cash. So the, the misconception here is cash is safe. I can put it here. I don't have to worry. Everything is going to be okay. Cash is good. It's not. It is going to lose 2, 3, 4% of value every year. And if it's safe in that sense that it only loses 2, 3, 4% per year, that's why in the financial world we consider it safe. But it's not safe in the sense that I can leave it here for a long period of time and not have to worry about it. That is going to be massively destructive to your wealth. Right. To the point, the bottom line is, Put your money to work. Your money needs to be invested in a productive asset and needs to be gaining and not losing. And if you're sitting on cash, you're actually losing real wealth. Exactly. It's not staying the same. It is going down. If you're not gaining, if you're not increasing, you're decreasing your net worth. Lie number three. I don't have enough money to invest right now. Yeah, this is... I mean, maybe this was true years ago and maybe it still exists in people's minds because it used to be true. But yeah, man, welcome to the 21st century. You can get broad diversification. You can get lots of different investments. You can get lots of different uh, rates of return and different assets that you can buy for very little. And the misconception here is that people think that in order for me to invest, I need to have a lot of money. I mean, I mean, what am I going to invest in, Right. Uh, real estate property, well, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. A uh, franchise for uh, McDonald's, well, that's a million bucks. Um, you know, what am I going to buy? Like stocks? Well, you need a million dollars before you can buy it. You can make any money in stocks. That's kind of the misconception that people have that in order to make money, you need to have so much of it. It's a high hurdle to even get into the game. And that's, that's not true. These days, you can invest with, you can invest in a broad array of businesses around the world for as little as $25 a month. And who doesn't have that $25 a month to be able to build their future? And, and there's a point to be made here about habits, right? We just got, got off talking about habits in the last episode. And you know, if, if you don't have a big lump sum of money to invest, that's okay. In fact, we're going to talk about in a minute why that's probably a good thing and why it's better to, instead of investing in a lump sum, invest a little bit at a time. Right. But think of it as a habit as well, right? If you can just get used to the habit of investing a small amount of money every month, even if it's really small, even if it's $25 a month. And honestly, who does not have $25 a month to put aside into an investment account? Exactly. If you're saying you don't, I'm telling you, you're kidding yourself. Like you're lying to yourself and I'm calling you on it. <laughs> and I don't care you, if that offends you because that's just a lie, right? You. And if you can put that kind of money aside every month for a few months and then you increase it by $5 and then by $10 and by $20, before you know it, you will be setting aside habitually a significant amount of money every month towards your future. 
Yeah, and on that point that you made, Ahmed, about it might even be better not to wait and save up a big chunk of cash, there's a, a, a thing, something that we're going to post on the website. Um, it's a very specific example of this concept. And, and what we're talking about here in the technical term financially is called dollar cost averaging. It's if you put a fixed amount of money into the market at a regular interval. That's all we're talking about. And it's kind of a strange concept because really the only example I can think of is I know Ahmed likes bananas. He eats a lot of them, puts them in the smoothie every morning. Oh, my entire family. We're just like, we're monkeys. We're just crazy, <laughs> crazy about bananas. It, it, it yeah. It, it, it boggles the mind when you go to his house. Um, imagine, Ahmed, I told you that you had $100 to spend on bananas a week. Oh, it's going to be a good week. Yeah, right? So, and, and here are the rules. You have to spend it all and you, you can't save any of it. It's all going to go in. You're all, you're going to buy as much as you can for a hundred bucks, regardless of what the price of bananas are. Okay? Not a problem. It's a very strange thing. Nobody actually does that. And that's why dollar cost averaging is a strange concept. But imagine you had to do that. You had a set amount of money and you were going to spend it all regardless of the price. So week one goes by, you buy a hundred bucks worth of bananas. There's a lot of bananas, but hey, it's what you need. It's perfect. It's a great amount. Week two comes by and the price of bananas has been chopped in half. So are you getting the same amount of bananas as before? More bananas. You get double the amount of bananas. The price goes on sale by 50% and you have to buy it all. You still have to spend the full hundred bucks. You're buying double the amount of bananas. Okay, so week three comes by and... Not only has the price increased, it's gone past where it started and doubled where it was before. So now you're going to buy half the amount of bananas as you did in week one. When you do this in the investment market, there's a good example in between August of 2000 and August of 2005, a five-year period where the market, and the example that I'll show you in the website is uh, in the, tr the Toronto Stock Exchange, so the Canadian market. But this would be true for different, different markets, different times. If you invested from 2000, August 2000 to August 2005, your money would have gone nowhere. It would have gone down because, you know, tech bubble burst, 9-11 happened, um, and then it would have gone back up as things recovered later on. So that over that five-year period, we, you would have made almost no money. So, so the, where the market was at in August 2000, it returned to that level in August 2005. Exactly. After going down, it came back up and then came out at the same level. After five years. Kind of sucks, right? If instead of investing, let's say $10,000 right in the beginning and waiting till the end. If you, you, if you invest in $10,000 in the beginning, you'd end up with $10,000 at the end. Five years later, that sucks. If instead of doing it all in the beginning, if you broke that amount of money up and you invested an equal amount every quarter, every three months in this example, every three months you invest, every three months you invest, every three months you invest, and you're not making the decision as to how much, you're just saying every three months I'm doing the same amount every time. And you did that for the entire period, instead of ending up at the end of five years with just 10 grand, you actually would have ended up with $14,000. So you made so four grand. You made 40%. And it's really strange because it's a flat market otherwise, but by doing the investments in this strange, broken up way, you would have made money. Hmm. So there's a, there's a couple of really interesting things happening there, right? One is that you you're taking yourself out of the equation yes which we talked about earlier why that's really important right if you if you think you can time the market or guess when certain stocks are going to go up well you're going to lose a lot of money 
yeah, the data is clear. Nobody's able to do that. And then you have the concept of buy low and sell high. But that requires you knowing that this is high and this is low. Well, yeah, it's all relative, right? What's low, what's high? Like, how do I know low isn't going to go lower? Exactly. How do you know that low isn't going to go lower? So what this concept of breaking things up, this dollar cost averaging, what it does is it removes the question, when is a good time to invest? Because the answer becomes all day, every day. You should always be investing. You should always be investing a fixed regular amount because the reason why fixed matters is because when prices are high, you're going to be buying less. Yes. You just won't know it, that it's less until you know, two months later when stuff has gone down and you're like, oh man, I'm glad I bought less back when it was expensive. And when things are down, you're going to be buying more because it's on sale. So if the prices go down by 50%, you're going to be buying twice as much stuff. Whereas if you if you put all your $10,000 into that market at August of 2000, what are you doing? You're you're buying at one single price point. Right. And you have no idea if that's a good price point or not. Yeah, I mean, at that time, people thought tech stocks were amazing. Uh, there was this dot-com bubble. We now know it's a bubble. We didn't know it was a bubble back then, or most people didn't know it was a bubble back then. vast majority of people, obviously, didn't know that it was a bubble back then. There would have been a height of exuberance in this new economy, this new technology called the internet and how we can invest in it. That would have burst. And then 9-11 would have happened, and that definitely wasn't you couldn't have foreseen. So... You made a decision to invest at a point in time not knowing what the future was like. If you just did a little bit throughout time, you would be better off. So dollar cost averaging or the idea of investing a fixed amount over a set period of time yes, is the best way to operationalize the idea of buy low, sell high. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lie number four. All right. I got a lot going on right now. I can worry about retirement later. Yeah, man. I mean, like all the expenses, the house, the kids. Uh, and, and, and you know, I'm in my 30s. I'm in my 20s. Why do I really care about retirement? I just got into my career. I'm not really thinking about leaving it that quickly. I don't hate my job that bad. So I can, you know, I can delay this. You know, I'll, I'll think about this. I'll deal with this when I'm much later in life, 40s, 50s. Then I'll start to think about that. That's one of the most destructive self-talk that happens regularly with everybody. And it's destructive with, in so many different ways. The biggest thing that's on your side, the biggest asset that you have when it comes, no, I shouldn't say that. I should say the most important thing. There are two really, really important things when it comes to investing. Achieving a great amount of money down the road, long term, there's two very important things. The second most important thing is the rate of return that you achieve. So it is important that you make, you know, if, if you make 10% on your money, that's better than making 1% on your money in return, right? Return matters. I can't say it doesn't, but there's one thing that matters more. If you want to make a lot of money on your money and have a, a very good rate of return, the most important thing is time. So I noticed that the amount of money didn't even make your list. Yeah, I mean, principle, obviously, you know, it's, it's a mathematical reality, absolutely. But I'm talking in a, in, not in an absolute dollar sense, like in a full rate of return. How much total percent have you received over time? How many total dollars? Yeah, the bigger principle, that's obviously going to be mathematically correct. But to achieve a big, the biggest rate of return 
over time, the rate of return that you receive per year matters, but the amount of time you allow that to grow matters far more. And just one quick example off the top of your head, just to understand this logically. If you were 64 years old and you have one year to invest and you invest whatever amount of money and you get a 100% rate of return, that's phenomenal. That's a great year. That's an absolutely astounding rate of return. That you're never going to get, by the way. <laughs> Hypothetically. Sure. Obviously. Hypothetically. But if what's more important, if you instead invested money back when you were 20, and let that sit there and compound multiple times over, over what, 45 years, even at 7%, you'll achieve a whole lot more money. You will make a ton more than you could imagine. And we're going to illustrate that in a little while. Well, let's do that right now. Let's give this example. So, okay. So the, the, the theory or the concept that we're explaining to you here is called compounding. Compounding. It's the eighth wonder of the world, according to the greatest, one of the greatest mathematicians, physicists in the world, Einstein. Right. So there's an example of the power of compounding in Tony Robbins' new book called, uh, it's called Money Master the Game. Seven right. steps, seven simple steps to financial freedom. I don't care if you don't like Tony Robbins or not. Um, the book is really good. And yeah. You should read it because this is actually not Tony Robbins. What Tony Robbins does is he goes and he interviews the very, very wealthy folks that are on his Rolodex, um, you know, the, the the financial masters, and he asks them for advice for the average Joe investor. What can the yes. average Joe investor do to build wealth and to achieve financial freedom? And it's it's a gold mine. I mean, it's, it's really, really good, really worth a read. One of the interviews he does is with uh, Burton Malkiel, who's the author of a very popular book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Yes. And Malkiel has this example that he uses to illustrate the idea of compounding. Right. And the example he gives is there's two twin brothers, and we're going to call them Ahmed and Saeed. Okay. Okay. Which one, which one do I get to be? You get to be the smart one, as yes. usual, right? <laughs> so Saeed started saving for his retirement and investing at the age of 20. Okay, at the age of 20 years old, he started putting away $4,000 every year until the age of 40. Okay, so for for 20 years, from 20 to 40, Saeed invested $4,000 every year for his retirement. Got it. Okay, so it's like 300, um, some odd, 350-ish a month. Yeah, and we're assuming 10% return per year and a tax-free environment. Okay. okay, just to so, make the math easy. So Saeed, Saeed in total invested $80,000. Over those 20 years, it was 80 grand total. Yeah, at the age of 40, he stops, stops investing, stops funding that account, and he just let that, that amount grow at, again, 10% per year. And, and compound. And compound. Ahmed, on the other hand, not so smart. <laughs> Ahmed didn't start investing until the age of 40. And remember, they're twin brothers at the same age. So Ahmed started at the age of 40 when Saeed was finished in investing and funding his account. Yeah. Okay. At the age of 40, Ahmed begins putting, again, $4,000 per year into his investment account. And he does it all the way to the age of 65. Okay. So Ahmed invests for five years longer. So 25 years total. Yeah. And a total amount of $100,000. So Saeed did 80 thousand dollars over 20 years ahmed did a hundred thousand dollars over 25 years well i think it's pretty clear who's going to win 
Right, so Ahmed invested more money over a longer time period, but just later in the game. Yes. Okay. Saeed ended up with 600% more money at the age of 65 than Ahmed did. Fantastic. And in real dollars, at the age of 65, Saeed had $2.5 million. Ahmed had less than 400000 <sighs> So Ahmed started at 40, Saeed started at 20. So if you're in your 40s, 50s, and you're getting started, that's the reality. If you're in your 20s, think about the opportunity that you have going forward. I mean, in my practice as a financial planner, it's the most depressing meetings that I have are with clients who are in their 50s, and that's when they're getting started, and that's when they're getting serious. Because I know how difficult it's going to be for them. Before they even walk in the door, their financials are not going to work out. Their plan, the, the financial plan that they have or that I'm going to create for them is going to be so astronomical. It's almost completely unattainable and hopeless. It's a very depressing meeting. I really enjoy meeting with people in their 20s and 30s because I know how much opportunity is ahead of them. Because of compounding, the greatest thing that you have to achieve a big amount of money is time. Take advantage of it. And, and the, the point here is not to depress you. Like if you're in your 40s or 50s, you start now, right? The best time to plant a tree was yesterday. Yes. Right. So start now. The longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. If you're the in your worse. 30s, you know, it's still not too late. If you're in your 20s, man, you can really get ahead of the game because no yeah. one's doing this in their 20s. Nobody's doing it seriously. Everybody in their 20s is, you know, focusing on getting that down payment for a house or getting a house or getting paying off their debt and, and, and living the life, you know, working and having some money and actually living a good life and not planning and investing for the long, the long term or for their future. And they're just squandering time that could be used to compound. So absolutely, you need to start now. You cannot just worry about this later. Okay, so finally, lie number five. My house is the only investment I need. <laughs> Man, there's so many ways that we can cut this one. But in 2008, 2009, some of our listeners may not have been investing, may have been in school at that point in time. So if you were, uh, this may not have relevance to you. But I want you to think about, or if you can remember that time, most of the world, but it's very, very much so, the U.S. experienced a huge housing crash. So... And, and that was in, in some senses expected, but whether it was expected or not, mo many, many people got wiped out. The people who got wiped out when they saw their house that they bought for $300,000, now only worth $200,000, the main reason why they got wiped out was because that was all they had. In fact, one of the signs of middle class, being in the middle class, is that the majority of your wealth and net worth is in your house. Now, I've seen Muslims who take this to an even further degree to believe that having a house is the best investment possible. It has such a greater rate of return depending on what country you're in. And if I have it, you know, I'm not renting, I'm not throwing my money away, but the problem here is not the financial calculation about living costs and which is cheaper, renting or buying. That's a whole other discussion for another day. But the problem here is the one asset strategy, putting all of your eggs into one basket. And we know intuitively you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. You should, you know, you don't want to do that because if that basket falls, you lose all your eggs. If you spread out your eggs into multiple baskets and you drop one, well, then that's only one and you have other baskets with other eggs and they're fine. 
But when it comes to houses, people kind of lose that intuition, that feeling, that knowledge that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. And for some reason, we focus too much on this single asset strategy and it's very dangerous. You know what makes housing even more dangerous? That. You are the egg and you live in the basket. <laughs> <laughs> so if you need to make an exit, it's not that easy. Yeah. It's not like if you have any other asset that's not doing well or underperforming and you want to reallocate, you just sell and reallocate. Yeah. So what that means is back in 2008, when the housing prices did go down like crazy, it actually happened at the same time that a recession occurred. So people lost their jobs and their house was worth less than it ever was before. So now if they are, you know, sitting in Ohio, they lost a manufacturing job, they want to move to, you know, North Dakota and go into the oil industry. They can't now, they're stuck because they can't get out of their house. The only thing they had was their house and now they can't sell it because it's worth 200 grand and the mortgage is at 250. So even if they did sell it, they still have $50,000 of debt outstanding. So making that exit can be very, very difficult if you do it at the wrong time. And unfortunately, when housing goes down, it's usually during a recession and people lose, people can lose their jobs at the same time. But that diversification is needed. If you owned anything else, if you owned stocks and anything other companies, yeah, sure, the value would be down. That's true too. But you could have sold it very quick and got the cash that you need to, to leave, to, to make an exit. We can go on and on and about housing all day, and I'm trying to hold myself back. <laughs> Whole other, I mean, series of podcasts on housing coming up, or at least one. I know Ahmed and I have a lot to say on that, and that people Muslim in the Muslim community need to hear. But the real danger here is don't put all of your money into one thing. I don't care what that thing is. I don't care how good you think it is. I don't care uh, what company. I don't care how revolutionary they are. I don't care if they're a disruptor. I don't care if they're in your industry and you understand them. Whatever it is that you have a lot of money in, do not put all your money into a single thing. There are so many bad examples of this. Housing is just one. That includes cash too, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, cash is bad for the reason that we outlined before and for this. You know, this safety draws people to cash, but it's a false promise that safety so right, being so being yeah being diversified is ultimate i mean there's no respectable financial advisor financial professional financial guru financial author that would say concentration of wealth is better than diversification of wealth we can actually quantify that in modern portfolio theory has quantified that back in the 1950s that not only by by having money in multiple places not only do you reduce risk which you expect but you also increase return, which is unexpected, but you do by having more things. So that's why it's key on both levels. Reduce your risk. Don't be, you know, don't be too excited about something, whether it's real estate or anything else. Don't be too excited about it. Be diversified. You'll decrease your risk and increase your long-term return. So that was about four years of modern economic theory <laughs> wrapped up into a 30-minute episode. So, you know... You'll, you're forgiven if some of that went over your head. Yeah. I think so you, did a, you did a pretty good job. I, I'm impressed. Man, we, we came up with this, if anybody wants to know. Somebody had asked me a few weeks ago, um, you know, what's one thing that every Muslim needs to know about money and investing? And I couldn't come, <laughs> I couldn't come up with just one because inflation, you know, compounding, the dollar cost averaging, these are huge concepts that 
take a long time to really understand and digest. And like I said, compounding alone is so complex to understand, to really wrap your head around it. I know Ahmed and I, when we uh, read that example in Tony Robbins' book, we both were like, wow. You yeah, expect- and, and we, we, we've studied compounding. Like We know <laughs> the power of comp- compounding, and those numbers are still shocking. Yeah, it's... It is a very, it's not intuitive. It doesn't just come off your brain. You don't just expect that number to be there. I do another exercise with clients looking at an investment over 80 years, um, just a single investment invested 80 years ago, what the value is today. And people are blown away by that number. But that's compounding. Yeah. And, I, you know, realistically, we can't cover these topics in depth in the time that we have. So we're definitely going to include some links in the show notes to more readings and resources that go through the ideas behind inflation, dollar cost averaging, compounding, and all the stuff that we talked about today. So if you want to read more and you're not quite getting it, by all means, dig into those resources. By all means, send us questions either by email or you know on, on the podcast page. You can drop a comment. If anything's not clear, you know, Saeed is here to help. <laughs> and Ahmed too. Come on now. <laughs> Don't just put me up for this. You did such a good job. Let's put it on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jazakallah Khair Saeed, anything to add before we close? I look forward to the next episode. It's going to be good. Awesome. Thank you for tuning in. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.